Tonight we're back in Exodus, and I'd ask you to join me there. We're going to cover um, some verses that go over two chapters again in Exodus chapter 23 and 24. So you'd like to turn there, and if you did not grab um, the, the lesson handout on your way in, you were invited to do that. There's some in the back and in the front. We're looking at Exodus 23 and 24 tonight. As we've been um, talking about, the, the few chapters that follow the Ten Commandments is called the Book of the Covenant. And it takes up most of um, chapters 21 through 23 uh, after, after the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. And so this is finishing up the Book of the Covenant which are basically rules and laws for the people of Israel to learn how they should live as a people set apart to God in Old Testament Israel there. But here we see Moses is going up before the Lord on the mountain to, to hear from God the things that the people are supposed to know at this time. Uh, we see some incredible developments here. We learn about the Old Testament festivals and observances, and if we're quite honest, as we're reading through the Old Testament, some of these things become very, I don't know, uh, confusing, because we wonder, wait a second, if, if these things are no longer binding on us anymore, what good do they do to us? What good does it do for us to learn about, uh, you know, the, the festival of booths and, and different things like that? Well... Hopefully, uh, tonight, we'll shed a little bit of light onto these things as we see Moses, he ascends the mountain to meet with God, and God confirms his covenant with Israel. What is a covenant? A covenant is just an agreement between parties about how they are to relate to one another. We might make contracts today, or, or we could call it covenants, agreements. We might make those today. The difference with a covenant before God is that it's not a covenant between equals, right? Because God is our Lord, and when He makes a covenant, many times we see in the Scriptures, sometimes they're a one-way covenant, in a sense. God promises that even when His people are faithless, He will continue to be faithful, and so, we learn uh, many comforting things about God when we learn about how it is that He makes covenants. Let's read beginning in verse, uh, verse 10, chapter 23, verse 10. We'll read a few verses there and see uh, what, uh, what we might can learn uh, when we see shadow to reality. Shadow to reality. This morning, as you heard uh, Donnie Mathis preach about how Jesus was the true and better Israel. That was one that I'm going to have to file away because what he's showing, what he was showing this morning, is that the same little path that, that Israel followed in the Old Testament when they were being faithless to God, they were failing at every turn, Israel, Jesus retraced their steps in some of his ministry on earth. He walked the same path, visited some of the same towns, and everywhere that he went, Jesus was faithful. Jesus was obedient. So there's a sense in which Israel is the shadow, Jesus is the reality. Everywhere Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. So we see in Jesus, he's the true and better Israel. Let's read uh, chapter 23, beginning in verse 10. 
says this. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave uh, the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. So there's this principle. Every seven years you don't sow your field or you don't reap to the edges, as we're going to learn in a, in a couple of moments from Leviticus, so that the animals and even the poor can come and can be fed. Okay? We keep reading in verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your woman, uh, servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Wonder what that recalls, right? Recalls the Passover, when they had to get up and get out quickly. God was faithful to, to deliver them from the Egyptians. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you shall come out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest for the first, uh, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall, uh, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything unleavened or the fat of my feast remain until the morning." The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So, all of these different stipulations, all of these rules, what can we learn from them? Well, the first thing that we learn from these festivals and these observances that they're supposed to keep is a principle of generosity. If a principle of generosity was supposed to be shared in Old Testament Israel then even more so it is supposed to be shared among the New Testament church. And that's what's interesting. You know that in the New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus nor Paul, the apostles, don't talk about tithing, right? And this is where I get very uncomfortable because, of course, preachers can never win when they talk about money, right? You don't talk about it enough, you're being unfaithful. You talk about it a little bit, and people, oh, he wants his money. Okay, well, here's the interesting thing about the difference between the Old Testament tithe and the New Testament principle of generosity. In the Old Testament, there was a rule with a percentage, and you must do this, right? In the New Testament, there's, a, there's the expectation that your hearts would be transformed. No longer do you have to be generous because there's a rule, but now we're, we're called to be generous because Jesus has given us everything, and He will provide. And so now we have transformed hearts. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. If generosity was to be a principle in the Old Testament, then surely on this side of the cross, generosity is to be a principle that should mark believers. We should be a generous people. As the people are instructed to worship God, the principle of generosity is woven in. Look at in verse 19, they're to be generous to God. And in verses 10 and 11, they're to be generous to their neighbor. And all of this is couched, is embedded, is woven in to how the people are told they should worship God. 
You are to worship God, yes, by being generous to God, but you're to worship Him also by being generous to your neighbor. It's very interesting language, right in the midst of how we are to give praise to our God. This mirrors another portion of of Scripture in Leviticus 23. I've got this in italics there. Look what the people of Israel are told to do in Leviticus. It says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. In other words, if you miss it on the first pass, don't go back for that second pass to get what what you missed. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So you see what he's saying here. He's saying that if in your harvest time you miss a little bit out on the edges, that's okay, leave it there so that the poor or those who need it can come and gather it. This does a couple of things. It allows those who need it to get it by work, and it allows the person, the farmer, to give generously, to not just try to reap every last little bit for himself, right? You see that principle that's, that's given there. This is another um, uh, means by which the Old Testament Israel was told, this is a way you can be generous. This came right after the section on the Passover, right? Passover is talked about here. Right after the Passover, we see about these offerings to the Lord, and then next, Love of neighbor. How can you provide for your neighbor in such a way that here, at least, it seems, it's not just a complete handout. It's not enabling someone to be, I don't know, um, to take advantage, but it's allowing them uh, to have the dignity that comes through the work of gathering this little extra, and they're able to provide for themselves. It's one application, one application of that principle of generosity. We see in verse 12, there's a principle of rest. We've talked about, and of course, I have said, faithful believers disagree with me on this, and that's okay, but I have to teach the way that I understand the Scriptures to teach with respect to the Sabbath. Um, But there's this principle of rest and truth. While the Sabbath doesn't seem to be binding any longer in the New Testament, the principle of rest and trust certainly is. Even if we don't have a Sabbath day where we sit and, and do nothing, right? Which I think, honestly, uh, if, I, I think very few of us would actually fully obey the Sabbath rest if we were to follow it to the, to the letter of the Old Testament. But the reality is, even if, uh, or, or the reality is, even though the Sabbath is no longer binding, the principle is still there of rest, because that is a pattern that God has given us. We are not meant to work all the time. One of the reasons we are meant to rest is to demonstrate to God that we believe He can provide for us. Many times work, or a good work ethic, turns into workaholism, right? Where we end up working and believing that that we have to provide everything, and we, we stop trusting the Lord, to give us everything. So that is why there's this principle of rest on a day because our bodies honestly and our spirits need it. And then also because we need to say to God, God, I believe you can do more in six days than I can do in seven uh, by my own labor. And certainly that would be an understatement. Um, There's also this principle of God's presence and His protection 
We read a little bit about this in Psalm chapter 30 where David cries out to the Lord. David has always got people coming after him, right? He's actually in, in, in danger of his very life being threatened and, and uh, he has to express trust in God. Well, there's this principle of God's presence and protection in verses 20 uh, and following. So we've got to read a little further. Look at uh, chapter 23, verse 20. Behold... I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring to you the place that I have prepared. So you see God's, God's provision? He gives an angel to guard them. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Well, I wonder why they needed to be told that. Well, because they have a track record of rebelling against God himself, and so God sends an angel. It might be uh, important that they get this instruction. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. In other words, if anyone tries to attack you, I will protect you if you obey. Verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water and will take sickness away from among you. You see all these protect... He's protecting them even from sickness here. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will overthrow into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out. In other words, not only am I going to protect you, I'm going to protect you in the very way that you need. Something about driving the people out too quickly would cause there to be not enough people and maybe too many beasts. I don't understand, but apparently that's a danger here in this time. Little by little I'll drive them out until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of your land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Did you notice all the I will statements woven throughout? It's talking about God's initiative. People, a people who have a track record of being quite faithless, God keeps saying, I will. I will. I will. I will be faithful. I will protect you in this way. I will protect you in such a way that you need. I will make sure you have provision here. I will. Will I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror. I will send hornets. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, but I will drive them out before you little by little, he says. This is showing the, the personal character of God, how he is the one. He is the source of their salvation. He's the one who will do it. So throughout this whole section, God reminds the Israelites of his protection over them. We see this in the Scriptures in many places. I've got some, some uh, verses here. For the Lord your God 
is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. It's the Lord who does it. It's the Lord who does it. Deuteronomy 20. In Psalm 138, it puts it this way. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. It's God. If we find ourselves delivered, it's God. If we find ourselves provided for, it's God. If we find ourselves vindicated, it's God. If we find ourselves saved, it's God. It's all of God. We should remember the context here. We can't, we can't read the Bible like it was written directly to us first. It was written to the Israelites, but through their story, we get to see the principles of who God is. And in the Israelites, by the way, we get to see a mirror reflection of who we are. Every time Israel fails, every time they're fickle, every time they forget what God has done, I don't know about you, I just see a mirror image of myself reflected there in the Israelites. Yet we see in verse 33, God doesn't play favorites. He's jealous for his own glory, and he will punish even his own people for idolatry. Look at verse 33. It says this. He's, he's warning them, when you conquer the other peoples, don't take up their gods. Don't take up their ways. Remember who I am. He says in verse 32 and 33, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For, here's the, the purpose Purpose statement. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Isn't it interesting? Anytime we are tempted to go away to serve something else, something that we think might can provide for us a little better than God, might can satisfy us or please us or, or give us some kind of happiness a little better than God can, isn't it true that it's those very things that are a snare to us? I think that's true. It's, it's for their good. God will not let His people continue in sin because ultimately that leads to their death. So when God takes something from you that seems good to you but might be leading you away from Him, it's actually for your own good because James tells us that when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, leads to death. God will not allow His people to continue in sin here because ultimately He knows that's what leads to their death. Painful discipline is better than spiritual death. Painful discipline is better than spiritual death. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines the ones He loves. Here's the last uh, little uh, section in chapter 24. Uh, I don't know how to teach this other than to read it. So I hope you all are okay with me reading some Bible because when we're reading through narrative. That's the only way to do it. To get the story, we've got to read the story. So, Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall, shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, 
All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sounds pretty ambitious for them, doesn't it? Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. I don't know. Let's see if we make it even, even the rest of the chapter. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So this this blood is imagery, right? We know that whenever we see blood, it's pointing toward the ultimate blood that we all need. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. In other words, he read everything that we just finished reading. He read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And God said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's see what we might learn here. I hope that you'll see the beauty of this as we see what this Old Testament shadow, this Old Testament picture pointed toward in the New Testament reality of Jesus. In order for the presence of God to come near the people, a kind of relationship had to be established. A kind of covenant had to be made. In other words, anytime sinful us and holy God, friends, I, even, I wonder if we really even get how, how big the chasm is. I wonder if we really fathom the distance between us and God. Friends, I hope that that chasm seems huge to you. I hope it seems huge so that the grace and forgiveness of Jesus will seem sweet. If you think, if you think that the chasm that we had to cross, that we had to cross was just a little hoop like that, you'll think very small thoughts of Jesus because you won't really think that he had to do very much to get you to God. But if you see the chasm, the ravine, the grand canyon of our sin that separated us from God, then Jesus will seem sweet to you. We are those sinners, and that chasm is wide. Anytime sinful us and holy God are going to be made at peace with one another, it's because God has taken the initiative 
to make a relationship, some kind of covenant of peace in between us. He did this in the shadowy way in the Old Testament. Notice, this covenant was, was ratified with blood, right? In the, in, the covenant, in the covenant being confirmed, Moses threw blood from the sacrifice onto the people in order to symbolize, you are sinful, you need forgiveness, you need atonement. Friends, today... The only way that we can be made right with God is if the finished work of a better sacrifice has been applied to us. See that picture? Worship through blood sacrifice was necessary and purification was necessary to enter the presence of God. How is it though? How is it today that a relationship between sinful us and holy God is mediated through a true and better covenant. The book of Hebrews, there's a reason why it's named Hebrews. Because it unlocks all of these Old Testament Jewish Hebrew pictures. I mean, the book of Hebrews is so rich. And I would say you're probably not going to understand the Old Testament unless you understand the book of Hebrews. Probably not going to understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand the Old Testament. But it says this, I just want to read these words from Hebrews chapter 8, and you can just follow along with me, and you see if you see how this Old Testament picture has been made a reality because of Jesus. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. Moses was acting as a priest between the people and God, doing the sacrifice, applying the blood, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You notice the people in the Old Testament, they walk through the wilderness carrying what? A tent called a what? A tabernacle. And everywhere that they camped, they had to set up this tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle was where they went to meet with God. But who is the tabernacle now? Not a building, not a tent, but Jesus. Jesus. And for those who are in Christ now, that Jesus has died, buried, and raised, ascended into heaven, where is the tabernacle now? Inside the hearts of everybody who asks for Christ to forgive them of their sin. The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, tabernacles inside of you. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus it is necessary for the priest to also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, you might insert the word now, but as it is now, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As he has a covenant, he... As, as the old covenant, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault 
with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one according to his each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Did you notice all of the I will statements again? How were the people of the Old Testament Israel ever to be made at peace with God? Because God will. And friends, how are we today to be made right with God? Not because of any good works that we've done, but because God will. And we believe that God has in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll respond to God in praise tonight. God, thank you that you didn't just give us copies. You didn't just give us shadows. You were in the Old Testament teeing up everything that we need to see in the New Testament. You were giving us pictures of what Jesus was going to do. And today, God, I pray that we would see that Jesus is our only hope. That you, God, in your divine initiative is the only hope that we can be, be made right with you. Not because we have, but because you have. Not because we will, but because you will and we believe you have done everything necessary to make us right with you. Help us, God, to put our hope in that. Help us to interpret all of our lives through the lens of the fact that you, God, have set your affections on your people and you will take us all the way home. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.